incredibly busy, so you are just running from start of the day to the end of the day. It's like a dentist diary, half hour slots from one end of the day to the next, um, and it's quite relentless. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of our special Inside Briefing series, Becoming a Minister. In this series, former ministers and the civil servants who worked with them reveal what it is really like to hold ministerial office and how to do the job well. You will hear all about the challenges, the confusion, the decisions and drama of a job which really is like no other. For this episode, we've spoken to former ministers about what their day-to-day lives actually looked like in office. So, you're a new minister. You've had your phone call from the PM, you've made your speech to the department, and you've met your private secretaries. Where next? Ministers have an enormous number of demands on their time, from visits around the country and abroad to simply spending time with their colleagues. All of these are an important part of the role. But you can't do it all. Sign every letter, visit every hospital or meet every official. As we'll hear, a key part of the job is getting your priorities straight and learning when sometimes you just have to say no. Every day as a minister looks different. Sometimes there's a crisis that means you have to hop on a train or a plane. Sometimes there's a bill to take through Parliament or an important cabinet meeting. But one thing stays the same. The days are very, very long. Here's former Education Secretary Justine Greening recalling how long the working day could be. I think it starts early and it finishes late. So it starts, I don't know, seven o'clock or whatever. But I mean, super early, you know, you start work from the moment your ministerial car probably picks you up because actually that's all time you can use. And it finishes late because even if you've finished all your submissions or got to where you want to get to, then there's often an event that you need to do or there are votes in the House of Commons or you're seeing your colleagues. And so you probably, I would say, you probably effectively finish, in my case, at around, I don't know, 10 o'clock or so, 11 o'clock. I mean, literally when I get deposited back at home, ready to go to bed. Former Business Secretary and Commons Leader Andrea Leadsom also recalls long days, with Parliament a key driver of that. The key recollection is it's incredibly busy and so you are just running from start of the day to the end of the day from, I mean, I used to start at 8.15 for some reason and um, and often would stay all evening in the office after the House has voted. Former Environment Secretary George Eustace told us how busy his diary would get, a situation that got even more complicated when he had a young child. In the most part, both for junior ministers and the Secretary of State, your day really from, you know, from the moment you get up in the morning and there were times when I used to get up at six and do my box uh, before coming into work so that it was done uh, until I had a child and then that wasn't possible because she was, she was up at six as well. So I had to find different ways of, uh, of covering that. But pretty much from the moment you come in, your, your diary is carved into 30-minute slots and it's one briefing after another. And it could be a briefing on a debate you're about to do, a speech you're about to give, a discussion on a policy position or on a submission. And um, it, it's like a dentist diary, half hour slots from one end of the day to the next. And it's quite relentless. And so that's, that is the, the lot of a minister, really. It's tiring just listening to it, isn't it? To talk more about the relentless nature of a minister's day, I'm joined by my colleague Beatrice Barr, a research assistant on our minister's team. Beatrice, tell us more about the impact of these busy days on ministers. 
I think something that ministers really struggle with is feeling like they don't have time to think or set priorities. They receive this enormous diary every single day, and that doesn't always include space for them to think about what's really important to them. Ministers also, like everybody else, have to balance their work with their personal life. It can take time to adjust not only to having less time in Parliament or the constituency than they might have had before they became a minister, and also to adjust to spending much more time away from their family, who might live in their constituency, than they're used to. One former minister we spoke to, Caroline Dinage, remembered bursting into tears when, after several hours travelling back to her constituency by train and by ferry, she was told she couldn't spend the next day doing her constituency work or even taking her children to school because she was suddenly scheduled to be the duty minister in Parliament and she had to traipse back to London. There's always something else that needs doing. Of course, as George Eustace explains, something might come along that blows the diary completely out of the water. Often your diary is displaced because the Prime Minister will suddenly decide there needs to be an urgent discussion on something that affects your department, uh, or there'll be some sort of star chamber discussion, as they call them, which is to try to get to grips with the detail of something. Even without last-minute prime ministerial requests and star chambers, there are a lot of other demands on a minister's time. Some time will be spent with other ministers from the same department, as Justine Greening recalls. I used to have a routine where I would have a, I think, a weekly team meeting, generally on a Tuesday, so before PMQs, so we could kind of, you know, clear off any issues. That was pretty much a three-line whip to be there. Cabinet committees can also fill up time in the diary. Estelle Morris, who became Education Secretary under Tony Blair, but started out as a junior minister in the Department for Education, didn't always enjoy this obligation. So the Secretary of State for the Department chairs the committee in our day, but the representative from every other department is a junior minister and a relatively junior civil servant. So there's no equality around the Cabinet subcommittee. Basically, I always thought that the department was the lead department, needed you there to get it signed off and either wanted some money for you or wanted to ask you to do something in your area. But it wasn't an effective way of cross-departmental working. And if you look at it now, you try to find minutes of any cabinet subcommittee and they're not published for years. I mean, you can't find them. It's, it's not effective. Estelle points out that working with ministers in other departments isn't always easy and depends very much on the relationship between the individual ministers. I think government knows that it needs to work cross-department and doesn't know how to do it. The only one that was good, but it was a miserable, it wasn't a happy committee to go to really, it was happy, but it was John Prescott doing the um, devolution committee. He was driving that so hard. It was this big area, you know, remember we went to the referendum in the northeast about having devolved... Regional Assembly, I think. He really cared about it, and it's a good policy, and he's been proven right, because that's where we are 20 years later, so it's no criticism of John. But there was no negotiation, you can imagine. John's driving that policy. I'm a very junior minister. So he'd say, right, Estelle, what have you bought from your department to devolve to the northeast? And I'd say, well, we weren't planning on doing anything. You know, we've got a fairly centralised ship down at the DfV. We... Yeah, we've, we know the performance of every single school in the country, that's true. And um, we, we don't really want to let go of it. So, so which John would say, well, go back and find something to bring and devolve. So that, I'm not saying, I mean, that's what driving policy is like. But if you ask, he could have sent me a letter and I'd have ended up doing exactly the same. So it doesn't work. The ones when it did work was Sure Start. And that's because they pulled the budgets. 
We'll hear more about the importance of controlling the budget in a later episode. But as well as following the money, those personal relationships are a really important way to get things done in government. Estelle found that working directly with other ministers she knew well was actually more effective than using the formal committee structures. Another one I can say where it worked was when I was working with Tessa Gile when Tessa was in DCMS and I was Secretary of State for Education, Tessa was Secretary of State, and we pulled some money to do creative partnerships in schools. And it wasn't a lot for the DfE. I think I put in five million. It wasn't a lot of money. It was a lot of money for the DCMS. That worked brilliantly. But we could have set up a cabinet subcommittee to make that work. But it actually worked because Tessa and I got on with each other and agreed to put the budget in. So I'm not an admirer. I'm not a lover of government subcommittees. Trips and visits can be some of the more exciting and informative aspects of the ministerial week. They might not always take you very far afield, as Justine Greening remembers. I can probably think of two, three visits. One, one visit to TfL just before the Olympics, when we were trying to persuade Londoners to not go into work during the Olympics because we were trying to host this international sporting event in a city that was so congested it had had to introduce a congestion charge. So I remember doing doing a visit where we went round the control room and, and I think we then did a press conference there with the mayor of London <laughs> at the time, Boris Johnson, where Peter Hendy and I, you know, set out how important it was that people work with their employees, employees work with their employees to work out how they could really minimise trips into London. But Boris Johnson was, as Justine recalled, quite difficult to keep on script. And then it went over to Boris and he basically said, well, we all know how it works. You know, you're upstairs and you think, oh, maybe I'll just nip down for another bit of that cheese in the in in the fridge. In fact, I heard him run out that gag during COVID at one point. I thought I've heard that one before. Sometimes, though, you might go much further away, as Justine discovered when she was International Development Secretary. When we went to Sierra Leone and I was tackling Ebola and I actually, because it was such so life and death crucial. I was there far more than I went back up to visit my family in Yorkshire over over that period of time. And I just remember um, it was only after Ebola and I, I, I was back on another visit to Sierra Leone that I really felt like I saw the country for the first time. And I realised just how um, different it had been for obvious reasons when when it was facing Ebola. So they're a really serious, serious visit. I remember really you know, quite heartbreaking visits to places, you know, like refugee camps in Lebanon and Jordan, meeting people whose lives were irrevocably changed for the worse, mm-hmm. seeing kids who didn't realise what had just happened to their lives, but they were absolutely set on a, a worse path than they had been a few months before. Needless to say, something like Ebola will clear the diary for the week. Other crises too can completely transform a ministerial diary. Jim Murphy, who was a minister during the 2008 financial crisis, found that going on visits was crucial for improving the policies pursued by government. In 2007-2008, during the financial crisis, we could get out and about. And that real-time feedback loop was crucial in helping us design policy. So, for example, Gordon would say to us, and Gordon had set up a National Economic Council, which was about eight or nine members of the cabinet, and I had the great good fortune of being one of them. And it met every morning. And Gordon would say in the morning, I want a solution by this evening on the the automobile um, industry, the car industry. I want a solution by this evening. 
Jim's solution was to get out and about and meet people. So you would go on a visit, or you would go on a few visits and listen, and come back, not with anecdotes, because you can't govern by anecdote, but with ideas um, from people who were really struggling. And that was that was such a fantastic way to design policy at pace. And we had the benefit of that in the financial crash and during the COVID pandemic, and ministers were denied that opportunity. And that, I think, weakened policy. It led to, it contributed to them making, I think, some some unfortunate decisions that I think if they'd had the ability to meet real people, they would have designed better policies more quickly. And Justine agrees. I think it's always about getting a balance because you have to clear the decks as well. So you are spinning plates. So you've got to be out there on the front line, seeing for yourself what's going on, leading from the front, especially in something like Ebola, where it was actually really important that I get out there regularly to be with our team who were literally putting their lives on the line in a way I don't think people back home necessarily realised. So it really matters from a leadership perspective. It matters from a policy perspective. Justine remembered one particularly impactful visit when she was education secretary. I remember talking to a head teacher that had a school in, you know, in special measures. And he said, one of the problems, Justine, is I have so many initiatives that actually it's stopping me from focusing on the three key things I need to do for this school to start turning it around. So Beatrice, what are the benefits to ministers of making these visits? There are two sides to it. There's a leadership side. It's really important that ministers show operational staff that they're supported and that the department is paying attention to them. That's especially obvious in a crisis, but it's also important to, for example, make visits to NHS doctors working in the UK to make sure that they understand that the department knows that they're delivering on their priorities on the ground. Seeing the department's work in action, though, can also help ministers decide what to prioritise. In the example Justine Greening gave of visiting a school and hearing about what the head felt was holding his school back, she learned a lot about what the department should be prioritising to make sure that head teachers didn't feel they had an unnecessary burden placed on them. She wouldn't have known that if she hadn't taken the time to make that visit and speak to that head teacher, and that applies across government. Of course, a minister can't say yes to everything they're invited to, as Justine explained. But it is a balance and they do take a lot of time and, you know, there are ginormous lists of stakeholders who want to see you all the time that also matter. And so you are spinning the plates on, on all of this stuff, but that's just a minister's life. So, as we've seen, the ministerial diary can be overwhelming and ministers don't always manage to take control of it. Beatrice, what are some of the recommendations that former ministers have for how to keep on top of things? So we've spoken to quite a lot of former ministers about this challenge and they all have slightly different ways of going about it. One minister we spoke to asked their civil servants to leave 15 minute gaps between meetings to make sure that they weren't constantly racing around, feeling inevitably behind on all of their meetings for the day. Other ministers asked their civil servants to put thinking time in their diary so that they have the opportunity to really prioritise. Others ask for reading time, which might include changing how they approach the ministerial red box that ministers get every day. Some ministers, for example, prefer to have a physical red box that they take home. Some like to receive material from civil servants online. Some even schedule that time into the working day. These adjustments might seem small, but for ministers managing extremely demanding and long days, it can be really important to make sure that they're working the way that works best for them. 
Above all, ministers talk about the importance of setting clear expectations with their civil servants regarding how they like to spend their time and what their day should look like, and also keeping their expectations updated as ministers' demands and obligations change. So let's finish with some advice about how to manage the busy day-to-day from some of the former ministers we've spoken to. Justine Greening said... Some of the advice I would always give to people becoming ministers was never work when you're tired, because that's when those sorts of things slip through. And I'm afraid you have to be on your game all the time. You have to be looking through these submissions thinking, have I got enough information here that I need to make a decision? Am I happy that all the risks are really flagged up to the right extent? And finally... Andrea Ledson reminds us how important it is for ministers to take control of their time, particularly with the help of their private office. If you want to continue to prioritise Parliament, then you absolutely have to take control of it as well as of your own diary. The thing is that the private office are always keen to be very helpful. And so essentially you just talk to your senior private secretary and say, I want to only have one meeting in any given hour. And after every meeting, I want the private secretary who was in the meeting to spend five, ten minutes with me so that we can debrief and agree action points. That was an absolute requirement for me, because otherwise you would find that you had a 30 minute meeting followed by a 30 minute meeting, followed by a 30 minute meeting. And you would actually never pause for breath. You would never collect your thoughts on your conclusions from what you just heard. And nor would you ever have the opportunity to say, and as a result of this, I would like that to happen. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Next time, we'll be talking about working with the civil service and getting things done in the government machine. If you're a new minister or have your eye on becoming one, we hope this special episode of Inside Briefing has given you a sense of what the day-to-day is really like and given you food for thought on how you would manage your ministerial diary. You can listen to the rest of the series on our website, iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to find out more, check out the IFG Academy pages on our website, which are full of resources for those in or interested in joining government and read our Ministers Reflect interviews with almost 150 former government ministers. Thanks for listening.